Welcome to Quest with Kirk Durston. I'm your host, Sheldon Kotick. You can subscribe on Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to give us five stars if you like it. If you don't like it, please tell us why. And now, Quest with Kirk Durston. Good afternoon, Kirk. How are you doing? I'm doing well, Sheldon, and how about yourself? Doing pretty good. It is uh, February 17th, which means we're like 300 and something days away from Christmas. And uh, it's uh, coming up quick. Yeah, I love Christmas. In fact, it's I love it so much that it's starting to spread. So I start maybe in November and finish off in early February. My my wife likes starting early, so she would be a no, like a November first uh, decorator. Um, I've been holding them off, holding the kids and wife off until uh, Remembrance Day. Um, I would be okay with the American Thanksgiving, but uh, I'll give them Remembrance Day, so November eleventh. But um, she likes like she gets sick of the, all the decorations. So like mm. Boxing Day, she uses that to box up the decorations, basically. So it's like Christmas is over, wow, over, and uh, yeah, we are cleaning up right away. Wow. And I was just playing Christmas carols yesterday in, in my car. I had to go to town for an errand, and I put on Christmas carols for the drive back home. And that's February the sixteenth, I think it was. One of one of my kids was singing Jingle Bells, and. Um, uh, my wife got quite upset actually that uh, that was occurring because she's like, "This is a these are Christmas carols," but I don't think Jingle Bells is actually a Christmas carol. It's more of a winter hymn. It is, it is. But I'll tell you something even mm. worse. Behind me, you can see a piano, and there's some music on that piano. I am practicing Christmas carols all year this year, so that next Christmas I can play a pile of carols on the piano. So I'll be doing that all spring, summer Christmas carols. That is truly a little over the top. Okay, so I'm not coming to uh, visit Kirk this year. Um, yeah, so uh, lots is going on these days. Uh, we've got uh, interesting situation in Canada. Our uh, government has declared uh, basically martial law in a way. Um, Emergency Powers Act has been invoked, invoked, evoked, um, and... Uh, uh, people are a little bit annoyed at that. Um, I would say probably for good reason. Uh, there's lots of different ideas around. Uh, are we actually at that point where we need that? And uh, I always, I always get a little concerned when we're normalizing um, something as uh, big as the Emergency Powers Act. But um, we don't want to really get into the politics. What we want to do is take a look beyond the politics and talk about the spiritual aspect of uh, that kind of thing. So uh, we will talk about that in a little bit, but I want to start with a um, talking about the uh, Richard Dawkins uh, video that you did the other day, the reaction video. Uh, you've been responding to a bunch of the comments that are coming in. Um, those of you that are watching the stream that uh, – enjoyed that video or didn't enjoy that video. I think Richard uh, Dawkins has some uh, people that really enjoy watching his stuff and they were uh, a little annoyed at you in some ways. So uh, keep, keep the comments coming though. We, we want those and uh, feel free to comment on this video. Uh, make sure you're liking it or even if you don't like it, hit the dislike button. That's, that's fine too. But uh, tell YouTube that this is something that people should watch. So subscribe, hit the bell. Uh, to be notified when these things are happening. Uh, I want to pull up a comment that you haven't yet responded to. He, he uh, posted it yesterday, and why don't we answer it uh, uh, live? And just so everybody knows, we don't spend much time planning these live streams. We, we talk a little bit about sort of the topic that we'd like to cover. So Kirk hasn't been researching the answers to these questions for the last six days or anything. This is just going to be coming right off the top of his head. So if he does make a mistake, like it, comment, dislike it, whatever you want, because uh, it, uh, it keeps conversation going. So here we go. Ben Green writes, and uh, maybe we'll just pick these off uh, one at a time. Uh, you claim that once in an, an argument for God has been established, the onus is on the atheist to disprove it. 
But then you demand that science has to prove beyond doubt that evolution is true. So what happened to the theist's burden to disprove evolution? There's a few things there. Why don't you go ahead and work on those? Uh, you mean just the first three lines and don't touch the last yeah. two? Okay. So, um, yeah, well, Dawkins, uh, I, in the little video that I respond to, he gave some reasons why not to believe God exists. And one of the uh, points that he made is that there are no reasons. And that was his one of the reasons. The one reason is that there are none. And therefore, it's up to the, th the onus is on the theist, not on the atheist, to explain why they don't believe in God. And I just responded, well, actually, there are a a reasons on the table. And if you checked out, say, the first year philosophy course on his university, they'll usually they have a section devoted to arguments for and against God. So there are reasons on the table. And once the reasons are on the table, then the onus is on the atheist then to respond to those reasons. Now, they don't necessarily have to disprove the thing. They just have to show that it's less likely than not, or basically the reason doesn't carry enough weight to, in the face of other evidence that he might put forward. So it's still more probable to believe whatever side you want. But then the second line in this comment here, but then you demand that science has to prove beyond doubt that evolution is true. Well, no, actually not. Um, I would never demand that of anything of science. Science, in fact, does not prove anything. Like the word proof is badly used a lot of times in the general population. In science, what we do is we see something or there's something going on in nature, and we come up with a possible explanation, maybe a hypothesis. And then with that hypothesis, we then say, well, let's test that. And then we come up with maybe an experiment to test that hypothesis out. You can even have evidence in favor of the hypothesis. So in science, a lot of times you'll have competing hypotheses and the evidence, there is evidence that supports either one. So how do you determine which one to go with? Well, that's where the experiment comes in and each of them makes predictions and you do your experiment and you see if those predictions are falsified or verified. Falsification is very important. So verifying, uh, say, coming up with evidence for something doesn't necessarily mean the theory is true because it can also support the other theories that are competing to it. But falsification does eliminate it. So you could have all sorts of evidence that I robbed the bank yesterday because somebody found some of my hairs in the bank and, you know, various evidence that would support that. But the fact of the matter is, is I was here like, 13 kilometers away from the bank at the time it was supposed to be. So if I can prove that, it essentially, even though there's evidence to support that I was at least in the bank at some time, and therefore maybe I was there when it was robbed, the, the falsification prediction says, well, if we could predict that if um, he, was, he, he actually did the bank, we will not find him somewhere else at the time and here. Further investigation finds out, no, I was here. I was actually in a meeting. I'm talking with people. They can see me. They got the timestamp. So that falsifies the theory despite the fact that there was evidence in favor of it. And this is how science works. You can verify a, a hypothesis, but verification is not proof. All verification means is you did the experiment and you got maybe, and, and, and the predictions were verified. So it has not been falsified. So in science, we often say, the hypothesis or the theory has lived to see another day. And the more often you can test it, the more confident you become in it. So when he says you demand that science has to prove beyond doubt that evolution is true, no, I, I would never say that. All we have to do is, is see if it's reproducible. There are certain aspects for any theory or hypothesis. If it's not testable and reproducible, then, uh, then we got a problem. We got a major problem. We have to withhold our confidence in that theory. it doesn't necessarily mean it's impossible it just means we cannot no. say it's science fact or or exactly. even a um yeah we just can't give it that fact um it's just in a fact, theory we might want to yeah in fact uh, i i the the just a theory now that i don't say that phrase because nowadays it's just a theory um, really doesn't 
like people react against that. Besides uh, being a theory, there's lots of theories in science. We don't write them off because they're just a theory. We have to decide if they're science or not. And so there's been a couple of articles in some ex some top-rated science journals. Nature, for example, had an article on this. A problem in science is specifically in theoretical physics where they start postulating things like a multiverse, uh, which is not testable. So um, they argue that it's actually a threat to the integrity of physics. It's, it's not science. At best, it might be philosophy of science or it might be science fiction. But if you have a theory or an hypothesis and you cannot test it, then what you have, and you might have a very creative story to go along with that. A story might be in terms of words, or you might use mathematics. Mathematics is another way of describing things, just like words describe things, math can describe things. But if you cannot test that, what you've got is science fiction. Now, in this case, we'd have some evidence in favor of, and as I mentioned in the video, there's plenty of you might call evolution, horizontal evolution or evolution within existing life forms. And I think it's a bit, a bit misleading to call that evolution, even though that's defined as evolution in the genetic textbooks. It might be more accurate to, or more clear to define it as variation. Variation governed by natural selection, mutation, uh, genetic drift, and so forth. So what happened to the theist burden to disprove evolution? Well, right off the bat, uh, a theist doesn't have to disprove evolution because uh, the, if, if we grant, even if we grant that not only horizontal evolution takes place, but somehow we were able to verify that vertical evolution can take place as well. Whole new life forms, whole new life forms can be produced. Uh, that's logically compatible with the existence of God. Like what, what the, the burden would be on say the atheist to say why, evolution is logically incompatible with the existence of God. That would be the first point. And it's not. I mean, God could choose to bring life about in a wide variety of ways or permit the life to evolve in a wide variety of ways. That's neither here nor there. It's just an interesting question for us to consider because if you cannot reproduce it in the lab, then you have to ask why. And when we look at why, it's because we need whole novel new functional folding proteins which then, which of course have to be encoded in the genomes. We're talking about a quantum leap in information. Where does that information come from, that quantum leap? And there's reasons, and, and I've promised some, I haven't promised, but I, I'm saying I'm going to do a series on this. And we now know why we can't reproduce vertical evolution in the lab. And it's exactly the problem of encoding six, huge steps in genetic information. And nature just is not a very good programmer when it comes to adding novel information. Okay, so he goes on and he, he asks a question, um, or he says, and no, the merits of scientific theory do not hinge on our ability to reproduce it in a lab. We cannot create a star in the lab, but that doesn't, um, I'll assume he's saying, mean we don't understand how they are formed. I don't even have to remind you that, in fact, speciation has been observed and that the genetic evidence proves beyond doubt the concept of common ancestry. Well, okay, the merits of a scientific theory do not hinge on our ability to reproduce in the lab. Um, that is a big controversy in science because there are people now, especially theoretical physicists of, who want to promote things like a multiverse or string theory or even worse, a universe from absolutely nothing at all. Um, the merits do... Uh, our science, our whole scientific method hinges on being able to, on reproducibility. So if we cannot reproduce something, if it's not testable, at least it has at least to be able to be testable and falsifiable. That's the first step. And if it survives that, then somehow we, we need to focus in science on how can we actually make this happen? Now, we can't reproduce a star in the lab. Well, at least not a big one. But we can reproduce the, the uh, react, fusion reaction in a lab. We can reproduce. In fact, an, a hydrogen bomb is literally a fusion reaction, similar to what goes on within stars. There's other things that go on within stars as well, but we can reproduce those things. And sometimes we, as in the case of H-bombs, um, they can be very evident to a lot of people when an H-bomb goes off. And what we've essentially done 
is we've taken the process that goes on within a star and we've reproduced that in a small way here on earth and obliterate an entire city while doing that. So we have to be able to somehow uh, at least falsify the theory. There and unfortunately, there are some fundamental predictions in evolutionary theory that uh, are thoroughly falsified and they consistently are falsified. But I, I don't, I, I really need to do a series on this simply because uh, for the listener, I'm basically just saying stuff that I haven't backed up. Okay. So I always urge people to think critically for themselves and distinguish between what I back up and what I'm just saying. And anything that I'm just saying, please post comments on it. Now, he says, um, I don't even have to remind you that, in fact, speciation has been observed and that genetic evidence proves beyond doubt the concept. Okay, so um, <clears throat> it really depends how you're going to define evolution. And I've defined it in two major categories. There's horizontal and there's vertical. And if you want, and you need to get technical here because in science today, normally science should be very precise and rigorous in its definitions, definitions, but perhaps one of the most sloppiest definitions in science today is the word evolution. Uh, it can be defined as something like the variation within different uh, flavors of, I'm speaking for lame, for the layperson to understand. Here. Well, that's me. Within, so help me understand because... Okay. So if you correct, if you don't understand, clarify it. But a gene codes for a protein, and you can have different varieties of the same gene. We'll call them varieties. In science, you might call them alleles, but let's just call them varieties. And so one of the definitions, a mainstream definition, say, for example, when I took genetics at the University of Waterloo, is evolution is defined as a variation within these different varieties of the same gene in a population over time. And that happens. We can, we can reproduce that. We can, and, and, you know, in science, you don't personally have to reproduce it. If you observe it happening in nature, then it's been reproduced. You've observed the reproduction of the theory. So, like, so, you can look yes. at a house cat and a tiger and say, okay, there's a lot of similarities between these things. Were they the same <laughs> at one point? Did they have a common ancestor? That kind of thing. The question is common ancestor, and so to precisely define the difference between horizontal and vertical evolution, it needs to be a lot more rigorous, because I, I don't know what the genetic difference is between the house cat and the tiger, but you can define it such that you can then determine whether there is a common ancestor here. And the definition, I would define horizontal evolution as it doesn't require any... A, it, it, no statistically significant increase in genetic information. So the genetic information in the genome or the DNA of a, of a life form has a, an amazing ability for a huge amount of variation, but no new information is required. No statistically significant levels of information. But if you want to evolve something a lot more different, you're going to need a, an entirely usually not just one novel gene, you're going to need a lot of totally new genes that code for totally new folding, stable folding functional proteins. Because you, you know, the minimum ancestor might have say 285 genes and a lot of life forms today might have you know, 15 or 20,000 or even more genes. So somehow you have to account if you're going to have vertical evolution for where do these genes come from? And that's where you could start doing experiments, for example, even computational simulations. And when we do those and the actual lab experiments, we find out that just to code for one average gene requires so much information that we can actually quantify that if you're going to do it through evolutionary processes, you're going, the universe will literally, the last star will burn out before it happens anywhere in the universe. That's how difficult it is to encode for an average protein. But if you got intelligence in the thing, well, we're already building artificial proteins, simple, mind you, but artificial ones. So the moment you have a mind coding software, software is easy to produce. You withdraw the mind, now you have a problem. So the items that he talks about, speciation, well, you can define, like speciation depends how it's being defined here, is... Uh, 
no problem at all if you're going to define it such you don't need any more genetic novel genes to code here. You're just going to work with what you already have. That's horizontal evolution. And I would define that as no significant additional genetic information is required. And then he says genetic evidence points to common ancestry. Yeah, I, I say you look at phylogenetic trees, for example, and I realize maybe, Sheldon, I've lost you a bit, but phylogenetic trees, you can find evidence for a common ancestry as long as you're careful on which tree you select. If you choose the wrong trees, then all of a sudden you got a problem. But if you look at, say, cytochrome C, which is a particular type of protein, um, you can build a nice tree that looks like we all came from a common ancestor. But you look at some of the other uh, proteins that we find in life forms, and all of a sudden we've got problems there. So there's a fair amount of a little bit of fudging. And that's where evidence can support something. But the question is, what predictions can we make? And when we test those predictions, are they falsified? Awesome. Well, thanks for this response. Uh, maybe we'll get into DNA and uh, proteins and stuff in a future video. But um, I think that answered the question. Uh, ben, if it didn't, uh, please respond again. And we'll see what we can do to answer your uh, thoughts there. So um, what we, uh, the title of the video today is Humanity's Achilles Heel. Now, uh, I'm a Saskatchewan Rough Riders fan, even though I live in Manitoba. Um, those of you who are not Canadian, it's the two big, uh, uh, it's a big rivalry between the two teams. Um, we share a common border uh, between the two provinces. Um, in the training camp last year, four people, four, uh, blew their Achilles heel and uh, sort of messed up the team. The, Hillies, the Achilles heel is a pretty important thing. It allows us to walk. It allows us to stand up. It allows us to uh, be mobile. Um, tell us about humanity's Achilles heel. Yeah. Well, the, the term Achilles heel just basically means a weak link, and it comes from a Greek myth where um, this uh, individual by the name of Achilles was dipped into the river Stikes, uh, sticks and if you were dipped into this river you're supposed to become invulnerable and mortal but the mother held him by his heels the heel didn't get dipped in and uh, later on so he was invulnerable in battle until one day i think it was paris shot him in the heel with an arrow and because that was the only vulnerability it ended up killing him so he had this one tiny weak point so the question is what is humanity's achilles heel what is our weakness well we probably have more than one i think we have at least two but there's one for sure. So um, one of the oldest books in human history is the book of Job. Now, some scholars, a lot of scholars uh, believe that the book of Job in the Bible is actually the earliest book in the Bible, written somewhere roughly 1,800 to 2,000 BC, somewhere in there. So that book itself is close to 4,000 years old now. And, uh, of course, they don't have the original, so you can't do it that way. But you can sort of look at the content and see what indicators are, what historical indicators are given there. So that's why some many scholars uh, at least uh, believe that this is the oldest book. But in that book, chapter one, there's a, a conversation between God and Satan. And God says to uh, Satan, hey, have you noticed Job over there? He's a pretty good guy, eh? No, I'm paraphrasing, of course. He also and, added some uh, no, Canadian God. Canadian aid to it, so that's good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, of course, God doesn't ask questions idly. You know, there's something happening here, and Satan rises to the bait. And he says something interesting. He says, skin for skin, a man will give anything to save his life. And therein is, is humanity's Achilles heel. So for 4,000 years, Satan knows what our weakness is and according to the ancient prophecies on how the world ends history of humanity winds up it looks like that will become the pressure point to get humanity to do things that will be worse than anything in recorded history as far as the magnitude and sheer volume of evil that happens towards the end including armageddon so that's humanity's achilles heel it's the fear of death and the question is, can you be bought? What would it take to make you do something you would never normally do? Well, 
uh, we have an Achilles heel. That doesn't mean everyone's going to fall, but it's going to be a weak area. Well, I was just, I, I was thinking about this question in the, in, uh, in the shower today. I was going, what is a hero? A hero is somebody who risks his life for the sake of others. And um, I know Jesus said something too about that. Uh, what is, what is true love? And um, I, I think when we, when you look at uh, the idea of fear, and the idea of, okay, I'm, this might kill me, uh, it brings up different thoughts than uh, your regular fears. And so I, I totally see it. Now, I want to take this in a bit of a direction because um, especially with what's going on in uh, the world today with COVID, with different mandates, different rules in place, those kind of things, there's protests going on globally. Um, about a bunch of this stuff. And what I've been seeing, and um, this is hitting me on Facebook, it's hitting Twitter, um, is, is memes that seem to spiritualize um, things like freedom, rights. And uh, I, want, I wanted to ask a couple questions here because I think uh, the principle behind uh, behind what it, where I'm coming from is important for people to realize. And so um, I have a couple questions. So is the book of Revelation a real thing or is it just a made up? Uh, um, it's just, it's not actually going to happen. It's just somebody's view on, or it's fiction, science fiction, if you will. Uh, is, is the book of Revelation real? And you can answer it as a Christian. You don't need to, you don't need to back up um, for people that aren't Christians. Because honestly, if you're not a Christian, you probably don't believe in the Book of Revelation. Well, yeah, I would say that the Book of Revelation actually does talk about real events towards around surrounding the last days of humanity, the last months, or maybe even the last several years of humanity. And uh, I think. You know, there is argument as or controversy as to like how how literal should we take it? And that's you know, you gotta read it. I'd say I'd recommend reading it twenty-five or fifty times with at first and then getting a good overview of what it says, making a lot of observations, and you can better draw your conclusion. But the question is, will these things actually happen? And there's actually it's interesting because many of the stuff, some of the things talked about in Revelation are, always, are also spoken of in the Old Testament, which we know was written before the time of Christ. And in the Old Testament, you have two sets of ma two major sets of prophecies, one pertaining to the first coming of Christ, the other pertaining to the last days of humanity. The set pertaining to the first coming of Christ was fulfilled against impossible odds. And that right there should cause us to take more seriously, the other category, which pertain to the last days. So if the first set was fulfilled, we have very good reason to pay attention to the last set that pertains to the end. So yeah, I'd say it's real, and I'd say we need to take it seriously. Okay, so my second question is, is it God's plan? <laughs> Who came well, up with I mean, this? Yeah. <laughs> it, it, it basically... And we get a hint when Jesus was talking uh, to his disciples back in Matthew 24, because he talks about some of the stuff that hadn't even been written yet in the book of Revelation. And so here we have Jesus, who stated that he was none other than I am, the creator of the cosmos. But he's now in human form. In uh, not, He was in human form at that time, uh, strictly mortal form. And he's talking about the last days. And... Uh, what we see from that is that God does have a plan. Um, now, it's not necessarily, like sometimes a plan, let's say, for example, you can say, I see this, my child is going in this direction, and this is not good. Now, I can either put a wall up and say, no, not allowed to do that, bang. But the child, of course, may resent that, or they may won't learn moral responsibility. So sometimes... You have to just allow a child to go a certain way so that they begin to see what the end result is of their their actions. And God often does that in life to human beings. You know, they just allows them to live the life the way they want. If he knows ahead of time that for some of those people, they'll actually see this is not good. 
Um, but in the same way, God seems to be permitting humanity to go the way they want with some orchestration, of course, because God knows how it's end and he's got some plans here. So it's all known ahead of time. And I think the point at the end of it all, right now, we humans, there, I see a lot of what we may call pride of humanity, where we humans think we can do, you know, we can fix things, we can do all sorts of things. We don't need God. We can establish eventually a one world system and everybody's going to be happy and, and they're going to all feel safe and everything will be wonderful. And so God says, okay, that's pride. You, you, you've put yourself up as God now. So let's see how that works for you. And in Revelation, we see how that works for humanity. But he's told us all ahead of time. It's all known ahead of time by God. And he permits nothing other than like anything that happens is what he has permitted or orchestrated. There's two different ways. He can permit people to do wrong things. He doesn't make them do it. He permits them to do it. And it all culminates at the end of history to demonstrate to humanity that without God, we become the most evil force that there is. Now, we're not there yet, but that's what happens if the, as the book of Revelation unwinds. Okay, so my next question. Should we try and stop it from happening? It's, it's not good. Should we as Christians try and stop Revelation from occurring? <laughs> You know, um, there is an ex excellent quote by a prophet in the Old Testament who was told by God that they're going to get invaded and they're going to get hammered. It's the book of ha uh, Haggai, a very short book. And Haggai's complaining about all the evil and injustice going on. And God says, don't worry, I'm sending the Babylonians that are going to hammer the living daylights out of your people for being so bad. Haggai looks and he says, but those guys are even worse than us. And God says, oh, don't worry, I got this plan. And then he shows Haggai the rest of the plan of humanity right up to the Armageddon and the end of Revelation. And when he does that, Haggai is shaking in his boots. And he's not complaining about God not doing anything anymore. But then he concludes that even though he has to wait for all of this to happen, he's going to trust in God because it's God who makes his feet like the feet of the deer that run on the mountains and eagles wings that fly in the sky in the end we know that god is in control and this is what he's going to do and so as a result uh now it's a tricky question sheldon because some people would just say oh well you're just advocating to let things just go totally immoral and we do but we're also salt and light so why don't we do something about it well, I think we have to do what it's in our power to do. And when I pray about current events, and there's a lot of different current events, it's not just some plague on humanity here. We got other problems in Europe, political problems, potential war problems. We got financial possible collapse of world monetary systems. There's a number, we got a moral free fall that's global right now. And so I, I really pray, God, do something, you know, stop this, uh, restore it. But at the same time, I say, but I'm conscious of revelation. If this is it, then you know what's best and just go for it. Override anything I ask. And I'm, I'm in for the ride. And as Christians, we've been warned ahead of time. It's going to get real ugly, real ugly towards the end. In fact, to the point where most Christians are simply slaughtered. So that's what we have to look forward to. But I don't look forward to getting killed what i look forward to is what's beyond that eternity like this is this life is just to prepare for the hereafter and to meet god and help others do the same that's basically my motto help them meet prepare to meet god and help others do the same and if you uh get i think satan is using a lot of what we're what's going on right now it might not even be satan it might just be our our own flesh and and uh, sinful desires that are taking us into a period of distraction where we're trying to solve this spiritual problem by making sure the right person gets voted in or making sure yeah. that uh, the right laws are put in place or taken out or whatever it is. And uh, we just get into this uh, distraction where we're not doing what we're actually supposed to be doing on the planet as Christians. 
Oh yeah. It can be terribly distracting. Like uh, for example, when I see everything that's going on in my culture right now and how people are just kind of reacting rather than thinking what's going on here, they just simply react. Then um, I would say that's not good. We shouldn't be just reacting. So I ask myself, what is my mission? Well, what am I supposed to be doing here? And that'll vary from person to person. But for me, my mission is to just help basically other people prepare for eternity. That's my number one thing, as well as myself. And so I can't allow, I can't be focused on other things. Now, uh, I don't know if you're going to, I see some questions in the comment thing, if we're going to address those or not, but I just want to acknowledge the, the comments there that we are going yeah, to. Yeah, we, we might, uh, we might uh hit them a little bit but i think uh some of those comments are uh pretty deep so they're not going to be able to be solved in uh in a few minutes at the end of our conversation here i can give quick answers okay. though, quick well answers. I, I have two more questions for you just in in regards to this revelation thing um let's say there's a juice that you can get put into your body through a needle and um the government really wants you to get that uh, to potentially solve some issues. Um, could that be the mark of the beast? And the, the reason I'm asking this question is um, I've seen some signs, mm -hmm. uh, probably carried by people that uh, would claim to be Christians, that um, people are getting the mark of the beast injected into them right now without yeah. even really well, knowing they're getting the mark of the beast. Yeah. Well, that's the problem. Like that's a problem. No, the, the, the prophecies towards the last that talk about the end times do talk about a period of time, which is 42 months. It's a one world government at that point, 42 months. And whenever you have power centralized into just one person at the top of a one world government, that person's good. That's great. But it can go south real fast if they're not, if they're a dictator or worse, and this time it's worse. It's going to be the most terrible time in humanity. And at that time, they're going to have to have some sort of a passport, so to speak, to buy and sell, which is a mark on uh, supposedly on the forehead or hand of 666. It's basically a, a pledge of allegiance to Satan himself, who becomes pretty obvious who's running things at that point in history. So, but it, the timeline is wrong. No, no, this juice you're talking about, the time is totally wrong because we have that 42 month period has a very, very clear and globally visible uh, starting point called something called the abomination of desolation, which happens in Jerusalem. Very clear starting point. And obviously, uh, well, I would say obviously. It, it has not that we're not even there at the right point yet. This is this is not the right time, nor is it the right approach, because there is such massive eternal consequences hinged as to whether you take the mark or not, that because God is just, it can't possibly be something that people unwittingly take or unknowingly take. So um, in this case, this the, the juice you talk about, nobody... Uh, probably nobody is taking this with some sort of, oh, I'm going to worship Satan or pledge allegiance. No, it's, it would be, there'd be so many millions unwittingly taking this, if it were, that it can't possibly be the mark of the beast. Uh, there's other reasons why it can't be, but no, the timing is wrong. And B, the beast hasn't even made his appearance yet. And so, and that has to happen. Uh, and Finally, it's not going to be something somebody can sneak up or trick you into doing. It's got to be something that you knowingly and willfully do. And I say that on the basis of what the consequences are for eternity if you do it. And whenever you have massive consequences, if God is totally just, you have to know full well what you're doing. Because in the end, he says your own thoughts and conscience will testify for or against you on judgment day. So it has to be something that your thoughts and consciences are involved as far as pledging allegiance to the beast or Satan. Uh, Dagobah Dave has been commenting quite a bit, and we'll get into these, but I'm going to do an inverse, reverse order a bit because uh, this is something that has been getting me for a while. It's like, okay, that barcode on the box, on the box of salad um, was initially 
uh, uh, people were saying, well, this is going to be the mark of the beast and they're going to use UPC code and all of these different things. And uh, uh, I'm old enough to remember when cashless, cashless society and interact cards and those kind of things were, well, this is going to be the mark of the beast and we should not get an interact card or, or, um, or use, we should only be trading in cash because uh, Satan's going to use this to bring about uh, this one world government. And, and uh, it, it was really, how can Christians slow this down? How can Christians slow down God's plan? And uh, so I wanted to bring this up because as, as we see what's going on in society today, Christians are often the conspiracy theorists because if revelation is real, um, well, it is a conspiracy in a way. So uh, there is a bit of that, but uh, like Dave brought up a good point here. Uh, we're, we're really good at jumping on the latest thing and freaking out. And uh, which brings up the Achilles heel issue. It's fear. And we're trying to save ourselves. And we're, we're really focused on uh, being comfortable on this planet at this time in, and not looking at what the kingdom of heaven is. And uh, so um, that's all the questions I had for you. Um, yeah. Should we try and stop it? Uh, can you accidentally get tricked uh, into getting the mark of the beast, those kind of things? And yeah, well, I can, uh, I mean, okay. The universal product codes, again, we have a classic example of religious people not even cognizant enough of their own scriptures that that's the some of these are just face palm bad some of the things i hear christians say and it's it's not all christians it's just christians who because they don't know what the bible actually says they don't have a good understanding of it they just go wild with their imagination it's just like it's bad so it's not uh, the universal product codes they speed they speed up our commerce and there's nothing about the beast about them uh, i i say that if you actually profess to follow christ you should at minimum be very familiar with what the bible says and a ton of what i see going on now it's not the christians aren't the only ones that get carried away i mean when Comet Kuhutek came back, when I was in university in physics, so I was doing a physics degree, Comet, the, the whole world was, I mean, there were a ton of non-Christians also saying this is the end of the world and everything else. No. Um, and again, it's fear. But we need to know what the Bible actually says. I would recommend reading through the Bible at a minimum once a year. Minimum once a year. I like to do it about every eight or nine months. And I've done that. I, I started reading the Bible as eight and a half. And I, I began to keep track of how many times I started back in the in 1980s. It's a ton. And it's only through, there is no shortcuts to knowing the Bible. Like, okay, I'm going to go to seminary. No, I took seminary courses and you're not going to get to know the Bible in seminary. Like you will, if you read it over and over and again and study it and so forth. So it's just embarrassing when people, uh, let when Christians especially let their imaginations run wild and what constrains your imagination well the Bible will if you actually know and study and think through what it says so um, yeah and we might be near the last days it's possible there are things you know converging right now that's true but to if you have to argue about if this is the mark of the beast, then it's not. And, and because it, I do think there is there is a lot here that um, I what I look at where we were in the '80s with technology and and where we are now to actually have revelation happen the way it really needed to happen, it couldn't have happened in the '80s. That we didn't have a uh, technology solution to make these to make the mark of the beast actually worth it. And so I, I do think we are at a place and there, there's no doubt that some of the decisions that we're seeing made in real time are going to affect how humanity reacts to different things like 
um, like the mark of the beast. So is it part of, uh, do we need to stop it before it gets 20 20 steps down the road to the mark of the beast? Well, we're not going to. We're we're just not going to. So um, pick pick the hill you're going to die on is uh, is one of my favorite lines because we could be dying on the wrong hill over and over and over again. Oh, absolutely. So you have to be real clear. Lose our voice. In culture. Yeah, you got to be clear on what what our mission is, what my mission is. And now I will admit that in the last two years, the whole world has been softened up to be more receptive to totalitarianism or authoritarianism and passports and stuff. They were softened up to that. But what we see happening here, that's not it. That's maybe getting us softened up to the idea, but it's not it's not the mark of the beast for sure. Mm-hmm. And uh, knowledge actually. In fact, God says, for lack of knowledge, my people, what was the word? Basically, it wasn't good. So lack of knowledge is a big problem. So I'm going to bring up a couple of these uh, questions that uh, Dragobah Dave has uh, put in the comments. If you're watching and you have some comments or questions, feel pre- feel free to put them in. Uh, we'll see how many we can get to today. Uh, some of these are pretty deep. Um, free will, one of those conversations you can in- spend a lifetime reading books about. Um, uh, how can we have free will if God is omniscient? And I know you wrote an article on your site um, yeah. about this uh, from a very scientific perspective using um, using some physics and, and that kind of stuff. Uh, do you want to take a couple seconds to talk about this sure. one? A couple of seconds. So, um, I mean, just imagine you've, there's plenty of movies out now where people travel in time. So let's say you go forward in time and you see the results of next year's election. And now you come back and now you know what the results of next year's election are, but you don't tell anybody because you don't want to influence things, but you know what the results are. Does that mean that you, you have removed the free will of the entire population simply because you know? No, you've just observed the outcome of free will decisions. And if God transcends time, he's already there in next week. At watching your decision, his knowledge is contingent on your decision next week. And you say, well, how can that work? I'm not there yet. But from God's perspective, and his name is important here, he says his name is I am, which implies that there is no past, present, or future for God. It's, he's, it's all in the present. So he already sees your decisions. For you, it's still future. But for God, he's there watching you. But his knowledge is determined by your free will decision. So that's a quick answer to that. As far as knowing whether you accept or reject Christianity, yes, he knows that. In fact, he says that he knows those people who will um, accept that gift of eternal life through Christ, and he knows them, he says, before the foundation of the world. So since he transcends time, he already knows how each one of us will respond to all sorts of things that God can bring into our life, and he does that. But a lot of people will choose, no, I, I don't want this. It's like when I put the moves on this woman who I'm now married to for 41 years, uh, I didn't, the, it had to be her decision. I mean, she, <laughs> I just had to sort of introduce myself to her and talk with her and let her get to know me. But she would decide whether she would go out on a date with me, for example. It's up to her. And for God, it's, it's the same. We, we can harden our neck or stiffen our neck, harden our hearts, turn away from God, simply because we don't want God. So he knows that ahead of time. And he also knows who will die by suicide. Um, Obviously, if God transcends time, he knows all of these things. And in philosophy, for a secular definition of omniscience, is basically knowing all that's logically possible to know. How would you know that? Well, that's where the arguing happens. But if God does sort of transcend time, like it seems that he says he does, then he already sees all your free will decisions. And it's you who determine his knowledge on what you're going to decide. So, uh, Dave, if you're still in the uh, in the stream, feel free uh, to comment and let us know if those answered your questions enough for this week. If you have any follow-up questions, uh, we'd love to answer those Uh Probably next week, though, because we are uh, right out of time for this week. You have a uh, another reaction video coming up, and it yeah. uh, can you describe it? Because uh, I cannot pronounce this person's name as much as I can tr- as I tried uh, in the past, and 
Um, it's just not going to work. So I think you've got a good handle on it. Uh, tell me about this person, views, and uh, where you're coming from. Yeah, well, there's a German physicist by the name of Sabine Hossenfelder who has a, a YouTube channel, and I really enjoy her. She's a, she, uh, she does and looks at physics the way I just wish all physicists did. Uh, and I only have an undergraduate degree in physics. I have a PhD in biophysics, but that's kind of a different field. I really enjoy her, but she has this video on why free will is um, why you don't have free will. And this is, you know, this topic has come up today. And she argues from a physicist's perspective why we do not. So uh, I'm hope to post a reaction video, hopefully tomorrow, or at least probably Monday. Uh, that gives me a bit more time. I'll post it Monday. You can see it on my YouTube channel under, um, yeah, just on my YouTube channel. And um, then maybe we can talk about it next Thursday in the live stream. Sounds good. Um, the live stream next week won't be at this time. We might have to do a night stream or something like that just because uh, I'm in a retreat uh, at this point next week. So maybe we'll okay. move it into an evening session so those that are uh, working right now and can't uh, can't join us live would be able to join us. So uh, uh, hit the little notification bell, subscribe on the channel, and uh, you'll let you'll get notified as to when we are going to do the next stream, and uh, you'll also be able to see the reaction video that Kirk puts up before that. So uh, thanks, Kirk. Thank you for those of you that are commenting and watching, and uh, feel free comment. Uh, we do watch the comments come through after, and we'll try and respond to them either on the YouTube uh, site or in a future video. So we will see you all later. Let me find the goodbye music. See you later, Kirk. <laughs> see you later.